You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So, welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class, and what that really means is I'm not going to be offering basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. Um, Typically, it's about a half hour of of talking, and then we sit for 50 minutes, and then we have a little bit of Q&A. Sometimes it gets wobbly in terms of those. Um, We've been going slowly through the Manual of Insight, which is the new translation of the Mahasi Sayadaw text on Karnaka Samadhi. Karnaka Samadhi is a... um, Holly word that means momentary concentration insight practice. And it's a, it's a, a different kind of, um, well, maybe. Karnaka Samadhi was intended as a practice for householders. That's one of the reasons I like it so much. Um, Mahasi Sayado was adamant that householders can uh, get stream entry, or, or, or the Tibetans would call that unstable enlightenment, um, and that uh, this is a guide for that kind of practice. Uh, if you look at uh, the way that uh, traditional Buddhism was taught before that, it was taught uh, as a samadhi or a tranquility practice first, where you develop the capacity for jhanic concentration, jhana are high states of concentration. And then once you were able to develop high states of concentration, you would move into the insight practice. Um, uh, At the time that this practice was developed, the British had taken over uh, Myanmar and were engaged in suppressing uh, the monasteries. And they felt that they that actually that the British would be able to succeed in suppressing the monastic life in um, uh, in Myanmar uh, if they didn't do something to embed the practice into the the general population. And so they realized that it would be impractical for householders to engage in a practice which was uh, the development of concentration first and then going into insight practice. And so they began to teach widely in the lay community this alternative to that, Karnaka Samadhi, so that you could begin your insight practice immediately and that you could begin to taste the fruits of insight practice that would not be available to you if you started with uh, a direct concentration practice. I like to teach a metta vipassana practice, which was a practice that Mahasi reserved for intermediate or advanced students. And this is a combination of uh, using metta as a jhanic practice and uh, using karnaka samadhi as the uh, insight practice. So it's a balance back and forth between the two. What I find particularly useful about this back and forth uh, coming into metta practice, everybody know what metta practice is? is that you can develop high states of concentration doing metta and at the same time making the, the body-mind process kinder. And uh, in developing this uh, ability to concentrate away from the um, sometimes disruptive experience of vipassana makes it possible 
to be uh, equanimous with terror as you investigate uh, the Vipassana side of the practice because you know that if it heats up too much, you can withdraw into the metta practice and rebalance. And then once you're rebalanced, go back into the uh, Vipassana side of practice. Um, We talked about the basics of uh, uh, absolute reality and uh, conceptual reality, which is in some sense the basis of Vipassana practice. V means to divide and pasada means to see clearly. And so we know everything we know about self and world through our uh, conscious uh, experience um, of, uh, in some sense, our interpretation of the sensing experience, what we make the sensing experience into. And Karnaka Samadhi is this process really of soaking into the sensing experience and then stepping out to see what we've made the sensing experience into and then stepping back into the sensing experience so that we can begin to evaluate if the thing that we've made out of the sensing experience is an accurate representation of the sensing experience or whether we've distorted it through some kind of uh, afflictive mind state. In the metta practice, the metta jhana practice, the investigation is establishing the mind state of uh, metta and maintaining it and then exploring the quality of experience through the mind state of kindness. So it isn't necessarily that uh, that equanimity is always the desirable state. You want to be able to uh, uh, control or have some influence over the the mind states as they arise and be able to shift them from an afflictive mind state to a beneficial mind state. Um, if, you'd been, if you've been to Miramar, you would know immediately this, the sense of humor that the Seador was using when he described uh, the uh, mind as a dog on a leash, because they don't, no one in Miramar keeps a dog. I don't think there's a single collar or leash in all of Miramar, but, but uh, in the U.S. they do. <laughs> that when the mind is headed for an afflictive uh, mind state, you pull on the leash and redirect it intentionally toward a beneficial mind state. So you want to begin to develop a dexterity and recognize what the mind state is, and then uh, fostering the development of beneficial mind states um, and being able to maintain them or change them as you wish. So that's part of the, pro- the, the process. <clears throat> In order to do that, we need to have an awareness of what the experience of sensing is like and also then an awareness of what we've made the sensing experience into so that we can begin to gauge what the mind state is. If you think about it, the sensing experience is the, the capacity to detect what's happening and then uh, the thing we make it into is the, the fixation or the attachment is the, 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 the Buddhist word. We attach to a particular pattern of sensing and fixate it and then the world becomes solid and the experience of self becomes solid. And uh, so we're touching into the pure sensing and then seeing what we make it into, touching back into the pure sensing uh, to recognize uh, whether or not our presentation of the sensing experience is accurate or not. The Buddha used a metaphor of a mirror as a, as a way of describing this. <clears throat> 1600, 2600 years ago, a mirror was a bowl of water. Uh, 
and you would see reflected off the surface of it uh, your your face or uh, if you looked outward probably the world uh, and he said that if the water in the bowl were still and clear the reflection on the surface would be a, a fair representation of what was out there but that if the mind were filled with uh, anger or craving it was as if the water were dyed a bright color and so the reflection off the surface would be infused with the bright color and it would be a facsimile of what the sensing experience uh, was but distorted by the mind state. If the mind were angry it was as if the water were boiling and so it distorts the perception of the sensing experience. If the mind were restlessness, restless or agitated it would be as if a breeze were blowing. If the mind were filled with sloth and torpor it was as if algae had overgrown the bowl or if the mind was filled with doubt it would be uh, as if the water were muddy. <coughs> Uh, if the mind is filled with metta, then the, the uh, mind is still distorting the experience of the sensing, but it is in a, distorting it in a beneficial way. If the mind is filled with your uh, dismissing attachment strategy, it's distorting the perception of the sensing experience and creating a particular view. If it has a fearful avoidant uh, if the mind is the mind state is one of a fearful avoidant, then it distorts the sensing experience and creates a fearful avoidant view of the world. Um, I like to add the attachment uh, mind states as well to that, so that you can begin to have a. Uh, I love the poetry of the, the the hindrances, but I also like the practicality of how our conditioning causes mind states to distort the uh, sensing experience. So in the development of mindfulness, which is the chapter that we're working on, uh, we, the, the Buddha talks about five kinds of phenomena, or Mahasi comments on what the Buddha taught, which is that we have the capacity to sense, we have an object that can be sensed by that capacity to sense. When there's contact, a sensing, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises in the mind and then we have the uh, aspect of which, what's called Vedna or feeling tones, whether the sensing experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's the sensing side. And then we have the, the thing that we make it into. Um, in um, the beginning of mindfulness practice, what we're attempting to do is really soak into the sensing experience itself and then step out of the sensing experience to know what we've made it into. So it's this back and forth, constant back and forth. The mind, and uh, I love that neuros contemporary neuroscience is, is endorsed this view, can really only focus on one thing at a time. So that if you're going to focus on a broad range of sensing experience, you have to have a wide perspective. And, and because the perspective is wide, it's harder to notice a uh, fine, a subtle detail of each sensing experience. <clears throat> if you zoom in to notice a particular aspect of the sensing experience itself, then you, you don't know the rest of the sensing experience. And that, so that this vipassana, or this divide and see clearly process, is to really zoom in um, uh, and zoom out. So to zoom in and know these individual strands of, that make up the sensing experience and have a, 
a real understanding of them and then to zoom out to see how they come together to form the world. In the zooming in, if you recognize a particular pattern of experience which is made up of a series of aspects, that if one aspect, if you zoom out and that's, those aspects are necessary to create uh, that experience, then when you're zooming in through inferential insight, you can know that the other uh, experiences must be there in order to have that experience. So it isn't necessary in order to have a complete experience of a phenomena to always be zoomed out and see the whole phenomena. When you learn, uh, uh, learn um, what uh, the phenomena is, you can infer that if this is what's happening, then these elements must be there. Is that making sense? So really this Vipassana practice is this careful pulling apart or teasing apart the various sensing experiences that make up a, a larger experience and knowing the individual elements, like knowing the threads that make up the image on the tapestry. You can zoom out and see the image of the tapestry clearly, but if you zoom in, you're seeing only the individual threads. Uh, zooming out, knowing that that's what the picture is when you zoom in and you're just aware of, a, say, a, an orange thread or a green thread you know that the other threads must be there in order for it to create that image. Is that making sense? Um, I'm really talking about this in detail because um, the um, we sometimes wonder whether we're having a complete experience or, or that a particular phenomenon is completely noted um, uh, when we are only focusing on an aspect and when you learn what uh, creates any experience and all of the elements that are necessary for it to be there, then if you, that experience is happening and you're focused on only one element of it, you know that the rest of the elements have to be there and that's fully known in terms of uh, insight practice. So the Buddha, uh, or Mahasi, talked about five kinds of phenomena, which is this capacity to sense the object that can be sensed when there's contact the consciousness of the sensing experience arising and then the aspect of Vedan, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. He also talked about four aspects of phenomena. Um, <clears throat> ultimate uh, real phenomena are made of nothing but these particular aspects of their characteristics. Oh, th these particular aspects of characteristics is one function, is one manifestation, is one proximate cause is one. Um, uh, you know, my, my uh, main teacher in, in, in Vipassana has been Shinzen, and, and he doesn't really guide you through this aspect of first identifying one of the five uh, kinds of phenomena and then identifying the four aspects of that phenomena. Um, and so I, I don't know from my own experience um, um, really how to direct that. Um, a person can only realize one of the four aspects of characteristic function, manifestation, or approximate cause at a time. When a person is noting a mental or physical phenomenon at any given moment, only one of these four aspects is obvious. So he or she can only observe them at that time. Since two, three, or four aspects are not obvious at the same time, a person cannot be aware of all of them at once. Fortunately, it is not necessary to be aware of an object 
from all aspects at the same time in order to accomplish one's aim. Um, can you go to the four again? Sure. The characteristics, the function, the manifestation, and the proximate cause. So the manifestation is? What you make out of it. Okay. The function is an assigned function. So they've had 2,600 years to think about things and assign functions to them. Um, I sometimes question that. And then their characteristics. Let's can see. you give an example? I can. I was just looking for one thing. Thank you for asking. If we observe a lightning bolt, the moment that it strikes, for example, we will certainly be aware of its unique characteristics, brightness, its function to remove darkness, its manifestation, whether it's straight, branched, or arching, and its approximate cause, a cloud, and so on. It is impossible, on the other hand, to perceive the lightning bolt as if it really is if we imagine or analyze it after it has disappeared. Likewise, if we observe phenomena the moment they occur, we can understand the characteristics and such of these uh, truly arising mental and physical phenomena, just as they really are without any theoretical knowledge of them. So this is the sensing aspect, right? We cannot understand the characteristics and such of a truly arising mental and physical phenomena as they really are by merely thinking or reflecting on them without noting them as they arise in the present moment, even if we have theoretical knowledge of them. For example, if you note an unpleasant feeling, you can understand its characteristics, unpleasantness, its function, stress, its manifestation, discomfort, or its proximate cause conflict between mind, contact between a mind and unpleasant object, as it really is with this personal experience. So, in ultimate reality, you're in touch with a sensing experience, and then in conceptual reality, you're in touch with the thing that you make it into. That's this basic back and forth. You can look at any of these different aspects of it, or really then any aspect of it, uh, and uh, in knowing the different aspects, know uh, the experience. Is that making sense? Um, so, contemplation of the body the case of seeing. When noting seeing, a person can experience any one of the five factors of seeing from any of the four perspectives. I will explain each of these cases. Eye sensitivity. When we experience our eye as clear or sufficiently clear that a visual object appears to it, the eye sensitivity is understood in its unique characteristic. When we accurately understand a visual object, we know that it appears to the eye, that it is seen, so it appears to the eye as the characteristic, it is seen the function, and that it is an object of sight, its manifestation, and that it is based on the four primary material elements, its proximate cause. Eye consciousness. When we accurately understand eye consciousness, we know that it occurs in the eye or the sees visual forms characteristic, that it takes only visual forms as its object, and that it simply sees the function, 
that it is directed toward the visible form, the manifestation, and that it occurs due to attention, the conjunction of functioning eyes with visual objects or good or bad karma, its proximate cause. You have the capacity to sense something, you have the object that be sensed. When there's contact between them, the consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which awareness knows, and it has a quality of pleasant, under, pleasant unpleasant, or neutral in the, the, the sensing of it. You can uh, then um, begin the process of vipassana and tease it apart into uh, the uh, phenomena or function aspect of it. Um, but then the question is, uh, for a householder practice, is that going to be as useful as doing a, a more a simple way of uh, dividing this? So when you sit with Shinzen, the basic technique that he offers is dividing it into three broad car- categories of sight, uh, see, hear, feel is what he, what he calls it, so visual experience auditory experience and the felt sense of the body. In knowing uh, any of these aspects, if you are having an experience of seeing, then these other elements must be there. Is that making sense? In seeing, there's only seeing, nothing seen, no one seeing. This is a a basic uh, Buddhist teaching. In hearing, there's only hearing, nothing heard and no one hearing. In in, uh, feeling, there's only feeling, nothing felt. No one feeling. In tasting, there's only tasting, nothing tasted, nothing. No one tasting. In smelling, there's only smelling. There's no, nothing smelled, no one smelling. So then we're moving into this investigation of uh, self and no self and what we tend to make it into, that fixated object of what we might be. Sensing. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, kind of an odd question, but like, I, I understand like nothing, like nothing heard, hearing, or no one hearing. Right. But I, I don't understand the felt, um, uh, nothing felt, no one feeling. Okay. If it's an actual sensation. Well, in seeing, there's the sensation of seeing. Yeah. And then it has a quality of um, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Uh-huh. And then it has the. Then you can fixate the process of seeing into an object seen, and then you can fixate a sense of self, and then you have someone seeing. When we talk about the ultimate reality, we're still talking about simply the sensing activity without any of the fixation, which we'll get to later, right? That's mind, third foundation. When we accurately understand visual contact, we know that it's contact, it contacts a visual object, that it encounters visual objects, the function, that it is meeting the eye, a visual object, and sight, uh, the manifestation, and the visual object gives rise to its approximate cause. Is, that, is this pretty clear conceptually what we're talking about or no? The reason that I like to, to, to talk about it as there's an object that can be sensed, there's the capacity to sense it, and when they meet, a consciousness of the sensing experience arises is so that you can understand the mechanics of seeing. 
if you don't have the sensitivity to detect the object, then you don't detect it. So we have a very limited understanding of the experiences of the world around us, right? Uh, this is the spectrum of light. This is the spectrum of light that we can see. This is the spectrum of sound. This is the spectrum of sound. Um, for a long time, uh, uh, we thought, we humans thought that elephants were telepathic because they seemed to coordinate their behavior but they didn't make any sound and they didn't make any gestures and we couldn't understand how they were communicating and then they could communicate over long distances far beyond what we could do as human beings and um, so they began to record them and if you remember early recording it was wire they recorded onto wire and uh, the thing about a wire recorder is that the head stays in contact with the wire when you're rewinding it. And so they would record the elephants and then um, uh, there would be nothing on the recording. But then somebody kept the headphones on when they were rewinding and when the, the spool sped up, we could suddenly hear that actually they were, they were in constant dialogue with each other and that the... the base level of the voice was so low that it would carry for distances way beyond what our own would do. And so then we knew that actually they were communicating through sound that we didn't know before. Because our capacity to sense it isn't there. We don't sense that level of sound. So our experience is really defined by our capacity to sense what it is that's happening, which means it's an incomplete picture. And with uh, the um, development of neuroscience, we know that the whole body-mind's capacity to sense is about 11 million bits per second, but that the conscious mind is only 16. So out of 11 million bits of experience, each moment of consciousness is only 16 of that. So that even, even though uh, it's like... Um, it's an intelligence briefing we get, right? The vast network of our intelligence services is compiled into one page, and that's what we, we get in each moment. So that uh, what's interesting about this in terms of meditation is that you can begin to know what the body-mind experience is doing uh, in for, through inferential insight that you can't know directly. Right? The mind it keeps forming these things into solid pieces that will fit into 16 bits per second. And uh, as you begin to investigate them and pull them apart, you can begin to, uh, to expand an awareness of, the, of the, the making of these brief, condensed uh, uh, experiences. So is that like you can have um, all of us in a room together and... Uh, there's 11 million bits to be picked up. We're each picking up 16. No. We can be picking up a different, having a different mm -hmm. experience. So of 16. Each one of yes, us, totally. Even though we're sitting within the same experience. Right. And the interpretation of all of that sensing is based on your conditioning. What meaning you've assigned through your conditioning to each pattern of experience. So yes, everybody could be exploring a different 16 bits of the 11 million bits and assigning completely different meanings to them based on, on your conditioning. 
Right. There's a huge amount of subconscious activity oh, totally. going on anytime there's a sensory, anytime anything comes into the senses, whether it's somatic or external. Yeah, totally. A huge amount of stuff is. 10,999,000. Right. Well, in some sense, consciousness exists as a veto. Right. It's a, that's got to be an evolutionary tactic. Yeah, totally. Right? Because if we're sitting here and our consciousness is picking up everything, you'd be paralyzed. Well, right? That's just too no, much input. No, no. Because most of it goes on at the subconscious level. Well, the processing all happens subconsciously. So you have a sensing experience, and then the body-mind attempts to uh, the pattern it and then identify the pattern, and the identification is based on your conditioning. So you have a database of pattern recognition. The, pat, the, experience, the sensing experience is patterned, and then it's compared to your database of sensing experiences. And then once it's identified, it becomes the thing. And then that's shot over into uh, consciousness with the, the response that you're planning for but, that. But much of it, just kind of get off of this, a lot of the decision-making, the planning, is already done. So oh, by the time, by the time it time enters consciousness. By the time the 16 comes up, it, you, you know, by the time I was saying, you know, by the time I, I change, deciding I need to change lanes to get to the off-ramp that's coming up, by the time the wheels turn, my head start turning, the decision's the wrong made. Right. You know, and so I'm thinking, oh, gee, I need to get over. That's already, by the time that voice goes in my head, the getting over has already started, it's all done. It's just self, the 16 bits grabs it and says, ah, I did that. Well, that that's the sense of self that arises, yes. but the purpose of the conscious mind is really to veto the action that the body-mind has determined is necessary here. Uh, I like to think of it as a green metallic booth with windows on all sides and a big red button that flashes, veto! So uh, you, you're you send something, you pattern it, you recognize the pattern, you explore the database of options and outcomes, and then you make a choice un entirely unconsciously about what you're going to do, and then the whole body mind moves into action to do it, and then it sends a bulletin over to the veto booth to make sure that it's not a boneheaded idea. That's a very optimistic <laughs> 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 That's a very <laughs> and then if you hit the veto button, the action stops. And if you're not mindful and nobody's in there when the button flashes, you just carry out the act action that you intended to carry out based on your conditioning. Uh, so the pattern recognition is all based on conditioning. What? Eat the donut. I've been thinking about that all day. I'm going to drive by the supermarket and not buy the donut. <laughs> <laughs> you break. There's another way to do it too. To get to the outcome is to change. It is to break the, the the sequence at the point where old behavior is imposing itself, right. so that you don't need the veto. Ah. Right. So you. You break so the link earlier. You can recondition the mind. Yes. Then and that, you know, I mean, that's a real goal of, of my practice is to break that link, so that 
uh, I don't constantly have to worry about catching it right. and detailing it because you get more um, more authentic, more more um, more supportive kind of behavior comes spontaneously because it's not so conditioned right. by all oh, that crap I'm carrying around from my childhood. All, all your all your um, your attachment theories. Right. I, I can break that link earlier. So happy to hear you say it is that. It's so much, it's so much less work. Oh, isn't it? You don't have to detail all the time. You know? Yeah. Oh, there, my God. There is a problem. There's a little bit of a problem with memory, though, of course, because you, you, you sometimes... Well, the, you, you bring up dissociation in that aspect. If you dissociate the experience, it doesn't go into the database. And that's why people who are highly dissociative have such a hard time learning and why they tend to repeat the same destructive behaviors over and over again. It's because they dissociate the outcomes of the behavior. And so it doesn't get factored in into choosing that again. But, uh, you know, uh, arousal regulation is one thing. So the hyperactivation of the mind is one thing. The deactivation of the mind is another thing. And these are conditioned responses. And then your emotional regulation system is another one. Something happens in the present moment. We have a window of tolerance, which varies based on your conditioning. If you had a, uh, you know, a wonderful, uh, attentive caregiver who instructed you in really how to manage and feel deeply, you have a wide capacity for emotion. And if you didn't have that, you have a narrow one. So you notice some people are quite liable and some people are brittle in terms of emotion. You have this sort of window of tolerance of emotional intensity, and then if something happens and you react emotionally and uh, it exceeds your window of tolerance, then you have an emotional event which needs to be regulated, and then you have a, a pattern recognition of what that is, and then how do we regulate it? And then the mind turns on the activity of regulation. And if you've been instructed in ways to regulate your emotions, which are basically afflictive, then you're engaging in a an afflictic activity that the mind thinks is going to produce the benefit of emotional regulation. So that's where this really comes in, where you identify your beneficial and afflictive strategies and you begin to repress the use of the afflictive strategies. But you can't just stop them, you have to replace them because you, you don't have a choice about emotional regulation, you just have some agency in how you do it. So if you use, for instance, in my family, anger was probably the, the most popular choice for regulating any experience. Um, so it just arises and then you realize ang anger is playing in the mind. Um, what is the underlying cause of that emotional experience? Uh, which is, you know, in my family, since I've done a lot of work on the patterning, if the, the reaction to the present moment is sadness, the most common res external response to that is anger. If the response is anger, uh, then the, it could be either sadness or anger in response to anger. If, the, if it's fearful, the most common response in my family was sadness, generating sadness to dampen down the fearfulness, but it could also be anger depending on how trapped um, the body felt in, in that moment. So you begin to recognize the underlying feeling is this, uh, and that that's linked to this strategy for emotional regulation. But often what you do is you find yourself caught up in the emotional regulation strategy and then you know that the underlying feeling is likely to be the one that's linked to that. And then you can come in and attempt to uh, 
uh, quantize the present moment experience, and if you can do that, then the mind shuts off the emotional regulation strategy because you're regulated. And if you can't do that, and the mind is pushing the afflictive stuff, then you have to suppress that and push in something more beneficial, which is really where the meditation practice is so excellent at, at, at that. You know, a metta or some kind of equanimity process. So we're going to do um, <clears throat> you see how we can easily talk a little longer. Um, a uh, basic uh, investigation of the um, sensing experience. One of the things that's interesting about um, the sensing experience this is something that neuroscience has been able to offer us which we didn't really know um, very long ago is that the processing speed of the, of the body-mind um, varies depending on what the experience is. Unpleasant experience is processed at about three-eighths of a second uh, pleasant experience at about a half a second but that actual conscious experience is a half a second behind what's actually happening and that the mind just smooths over the lag so most of the time what we're talking about in terms of this exercise is that the association between what the pattern of sensing is and what we make it into has already happened as it enters consciousness because uh, for, for the the body-mind to take longer than a half a second to sense something, it means that we, we don't have any, uh, we don't recognize what it is. So for instance, if you hear a sound and you don't know what the, the pattern of the sound represents, it often will enter consciousness and the mind will still be t attempting to identify the pattern of it. It makes it easier to soak into just the sensing of it. Uh, sometimes um, I listen to foreign languages because I don't have any association to the sounds, and you can just hear the sounds of the language without making any associations to them. You all speak English, so that I say, I, my larynx vibrates and you hear a sound, but you hear it as words that have meaning associated to them because your conditioning is, makes it possible for you to decode English. But if you don't speak Japanese and you hear a Japanese speaker, you won't be able to make the sounds into words. Um, when, when I go to Myanmar, the language is so different. It's a tonal, four-tonal language. Um, and they use the same word, and depending on the tone, it has a different meaning, which is very challenging for Westerners because they'll say yes, but yes has four different meanings depending on the tone that they say it in. Yes, of course we would be happy to do that, could mean absolutely we're not going to do that. <laughs> they never say no in language, they say it in tone. And so we were, I mean, it's just, just a comedy of errors, of mistoning. <laughs> I want, sometimes we do a concentration practice first and then go into the Karnaka Samadhi practice, but tonight I thought we would just go straight into the Karnaka Samadhi. The idea with it is that you, you let your attention be drawn to something and when you get there you focus intensely on it 
and then you let go. And then when your uh, mind brings you to another sensing experience, you focus intensely on it, and then you let it go. So that it's momentary concentration. You don't have to be continuously concentrated. You could get pulled away, um, and then come back, and then again begin this momentary concentration. Um, when you get into a role with this noting practice, the, the, the concentration tends to spread over the intervals, and then you get this continuous concentration, but in the beginning of the practice, it's really just momentarily focusing and then letting go, and then momentarily focusing and letting go. Intentionally letting go, or letting it be gone somewhere else? Well, the focusing aspect, yeah, is a, a, an intentional, uh, intense, burst of concentration and then you let the concentration go and then let your attention be drawn to wherever it's drawn and then when you get there again intensely focus on what the experience is and then let the intensity of the concentration go so it's a momentary noting it's not a continuous staying with the object I want you to focus narrowly so that you don't really have an awareness of more than one sense gate at a time so we'll work with three broad categories, seeing, hearing, and any sense of the body, emotional or tactile. Any aspect of visual thinking, so if you sit with your eyes closed but you notice a redness in the eyelids, that's fine, that's seeing. Or any of the internal visual experiences, the mental screen, where you see memory planning fantasy, there's a visual aspect of the outline of the body, it's part of the proprioceptive system, which is how you know how the body is positioned. There's a, there's a, a feedback between physical sensation and uh, the outline of the body and visual to know how the body is positioned. There's the location in the, the in current environment. Most people, it's a view looking straight out. If you close your eyes, you can maybe detect this view of, this is my body, I'm looking straight out, this is the room around me. Local reaction, uh, visual response to local reaction in the body, and a visual response to exterior sound. That's the visual group. Uh, the auditory group is exterior sound, and then internal auditory thinking, and then some subtle vibratory activity that's in that place. Most people experience auditory experience inside the head, between the ears, or actually at the opening of the ears. And then the felt sense of the body, gravity, temperature, respiration, circulation, digestion, the efforting to hold the posture, and then emotion in the body. Is that clear enough? So how did that go? Uh-huh. 
evaluation of the physical. So then I go right to feel. Right. Ah. So the next, the next no, the feel. It's, it's, it's impossible. Okay. Yeah, by the end it was all unpleasant. Was it? <laughs> Very difficult. Yeah, just my back was hurting, so yeah. really just stay on that was pretty hard. Because it, it all became, it, it, it ended up new and everything, all kind of content dropped out, so it just, it's all new. Uh, my, my usual experience is that almost all sensation is neutral. That we make it into something and then we don't want it or we want more of it or yeah. we can't bear to be with it and, and that's the part, the mind part, that's the, the problem. But in the course of a sit, as, you, as your concentration develops and you get calmer, then I think that narrative slows down. Mm -hmm. And so that exactly what we described happens over the course of a sit if I'm doing this feeling tones practice. Yeah. I I don't notice so much the shifting of the feeling tone, but I notice that the third state, that third note, which would be wanting, not wanting, thinking peace or craving aversion, unconsciousness, uh, equanimity, that of, that often drops. No matter what the sensation is, drops into equanimity. But uh, my back was also hurting, and it remained unpleasant. <laughs> so coughed, I almost fell out of my chair. Oh, really? <laughs> and then my mind wants to get away from unpleasant experience, so it just focused on visual seeing, which is pretty neutral. And I noticed that my mind became stable and concentrated on visual experience. You don't see monsters? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I mean, um, if, if I can ask, so what exactly are you seeing? Because if it's like uh, imagery concerning matters of like life and stuff like that, then I I consider that to be um, not focused thought. You know what well, I'm saying? You're focusing on the activation, not on the content of what it's made into. But for me, it was just really it looked like shooting light. It was like shooting straight at me, the light. Just little sparks of light, that was mostly what it was to me. It can, it can be crisp photographic imagery, but sometimes it's just little, really, this subtle light show. <laughs> I have a hard time with, like, once I sort of get to a certain level of concentration, mostly for me it's somatic, and unpleasant, <laughs> um, but I feel like I sort of forget. It's like the labeling I'm sort of goes away, and I just sort of feel like I need to concentrate further on sort of exploring where mm -hmm. the shifting was occurring and whatnot, and then I just forget to label, and then sometimes processing will occur, and then I'm just kind of gone, and then I'll sort of come back and be like, yeah, we just it's just sort of we get. Pulled away. Yeah, I do. I get pretty pulled come away. Come back. Yeah. Pulled away. Come back. Pulled away. Come back. If you just... The, the Japanese have a saying, six times down, seven times up. <laughs> Which I really like. <laughs> you, and then you defeat the mind in a way. 
it gets tired of pulling it away if all you do is pull it back and then it settles. There is a moment when you make the decision to go into the thinking process, the content of thinking, that if you can be really mindful, you can see that the mind is debating whether to stay in the sensing or to go into the content. I don't think it's thinking. I stay in sensing. Oh, you I do? lose the ability to have consciousness. Oh. So it's the coming out and making it into something? So you're going into flow. It's, yeah, I think so. It's, uh, um, we do have a bias toward flow in practice, so if that were the thing that would be happening, then you would just go into the flow and abandon the other technique. That, that would be the way to go. Because the mind came in when I would realize, like, oh, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be right. doing, and then, and then have some judgment, and then... Which is why the labeling is, the rhythmic labeling is there to keep reminding you of what you're doing. Well, that's a kind of interesting um, as well because it doesn't seem particularly rhythmic at all, and uh, it seems as though like the more dedicated you are to the practice, the faster the actual labeling would be, um, because in the in the between periods in which you're not consciously stating one of the sensations, I, I don't know what you are doing. <laughs> so like the faster you do it, like the more. <laughs> I just found myself when I got distracted, I'm like, oh, okay, feel, uh, feel, feel, and then it would get slowed down, and then I realized I wasn't there anymore. So, so you have uh, two choices. One is a rhythmic noting, so you can tie it to the breath, for instance, that I often do that. At the end of the out-breath, wherever my attention is, in that moment, I label that. Um, you can do a freely moving labeling strategy where you're just you're paying attention to where your attention moves and when it moves you label where it lands and there's an upside and a downside to each the rhythmic noting you know faster that you've gotten pulled away into the content because you stop labeling and the mind picks that up um, but it does have a tendency to interrupt the depth in which you can go into the sensing experience with uh, freely moving, you get deeply into the sensing experience, but then you can get caught up and be gone for much longer periods of time than you would with the rhythmic noting. There's no, it's really the one you prefer the most. But I think that that's an important insight, the speed at which you would have to label. Because at a certain point when you get highly concentrated, the rapidity of, of the noting and labeling would get so fast that you wouldn't actually have time to generate the label and then you have to let go of the label and just go into the noting. Yeah. Most of the time it's going to be just a, a slow rhythm but then as you get highly concentrated it, it can speed up to it just an amazing rate. Flow is like that too. Most of the time it's easy flow, but it can get really fast. Um, Daniel Ingram, is it 70 hertz that he says is the special speed? And then you think, how the fuck do I figure out what 70 hertz is? I know. It's the silliest thing I've ever read. 
<laughs> right. The mind is tuning at C sharp. <laughs> ego, ego is tuning. <laughs> Very annoying trying to read this stuff. You have to wait through all that to get the cues. There are gems in there. I like that it's shrill and irreverent. That's what I like. <laughs> irreverent, reverent, it's all the same. It's all you talk to pick your dog. But, but, you know, what I find with the, with the and then put a leash on it. <laughs> put a leash on it. Good. Anyone else? Um, So this is deepening your practice, and um, uh, deepening your practice is offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna here is $20, Um, but it's a generosity practice that you do for yourself, so examine that. If uh, $20, if you're very... uh, Resource to twenty dollars doesn't mean that much to you. You should you need to give it a level that feels generous. If twenty dollars is a good amount, give it that level. If it it's too much, then really examine what is a, a generous amount for you to give. But really do consider give, giving something each time you come, so that we can continue to provide the space. If you're really not resourced, that's totally fine too. The community is happy to support the place for you to come to. Um, and you should feel free to come, um, but do consider supporting it. <clears throat> I have put a bowl out there for cash, and by the bowl are a series of flyers for different things that we're doing. There's a flyer for morning meditation, which is a, a conference call I do every morning at 7.30 to 7.55. Uh, you call in Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We do insight practice. Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday we do metta practice. Uh, it may not be the right thing for everybody, so that if you use the coupon, you, you can have a, a free month, and then after that, we ask you to give Donna for it. Um, I have a, a retreat coming up on uh, July 3rd uh, through July 9th at the Seven Circles Retreat Center near Sequoia National Park. It's our first time there, and it looks like a wonderful place. The original owner was Irish, so the, they have a shamrock-shaped pool. <laughs> 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 it was originally in the 20s and 30s a, a resort for uh, uh, film people, so Hollywood uh, stars, and uh, and then it, it was um, taken over uh, by a cult, and that lasted for a while, and then it was taken over as a family compound, and uh, the the family has now uh, turned it into a. Uh, for higher uh, retreat centers, so it's uh, they have a very uh, progressive 
policy in terms of who, who comes there. So I really am excited to support them for that. Um, we have some half days coming up. We have one on, I think, June 17th, and then also one on July 1st. These are the lead-ups to some intensives that we're going to start in August. So we're going to do a Meaningful Life intensive for six months and also a Meditation Interventions intensive for six months. We're doing it a little bit differently than we've done before. When we were at ATS, we had one, one slot that we could use for the whole year, but because we can uh, have multiple slots do it, we're going to do it on a weeknight for the first time rather than on a Sunday afternoon. And... Um, <clears throat> The first, we're going to do it in three parts. The first part is an informational-only class. So it will give you all of the instruction in meditation and all of the instruction on, uh, on attachment theory. If you're in the Meaningful Life side, if you're on the intervention side, then you'll get the instruction in Marlatt's re relapse prevention strategies uh, and the, uh, the meditation and uh, attachment stuff. The part two uh, class, which will start in March of next year, is going to include mentoring. With this first round, there's optional mentoring if you want to do it, but if you don't want to do it, it makes the, the class much more affordable, and we can focus on the delivery of the information. Part two is, uh, is focused only on repair. So you'll evaluate your, uh, your attachment strategy by doing an AAI at the beginning of the class. Six months focused on repair? Six months focused on repair. It includes meditation mentoring. So we really do need to understand what your attachment strategy is and then really hone in on the... the each attachment strategy has strengths and weaknesses and so the, the repair is different. On those, and then we're going to do a part three, which includes the uh, idealized parent figure protocol, which is a, which is a hypnotherapy, that is um, really does uh, shift the underlying attachment mechanism. So in the second part of the class, we're focusing on moving your relationships toward secure functioning without doing the deep work of uprooting the original conditioning. And then in the third part of the class, we're going to attempt to repair the deep underlying conditioning and shift that to uh, secure, earn secure, so that your automatic responses will be uh, deri driving you towards secure. In the third part of the class, we'll look at not only the attachment mechanism, but who you pick to be in relationship to, and then we'll also look at uh, conflict resolution strategies that you use in relationships. All three of those mechanisms are the thing that, that form secure relationships. If you don't get into relationships where you get into only very short-lived relationships, we're looking at the attachment level. If you're able to get into relationships and you have relationships, but uh, the, the person that you've chosen to be with is either reflective of your original conditioning or is, in, in the end, somebody who doesn't really meet your needs, then we're looking at who you pick. And if you form relationships and you pick well, and yet you're in constant conflict with your partner in the relationship, then what we're looking at is the conflict resolution strategies and how you negotiate them. Um, 
we all develop the conflict resolution strategies that were available to us in our families of origin. And depending on how complementary or how conflicted they are with the other person's system, then you have all of the tension in the relationship. For instance, as an extreme example, if you grew up in a family where everybody yelled at each other through dinner, or, and if you grew up in a family where everybody was suppressing and silent about their emotions, if you got together with that person, they would be expressing in loud language what they mean, and it would mean something entirely different to somebody where nobody ever raised their voices, where the, the mere raising of the voice has a whole connotation to it uh, for one person, whereas in a family conditioning where everybody was constantly raising their voices, it would mean something entirely different, and those need to be negotiated so that you can be in a, a stable long-term relationship. So that's the third part of the training. Um, I also take cr uh, credit cards or debit cards, uh, uh, so uh, that's all I need to tell you. Thank you for coming, I really appreciate it.